Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Patrick Fowles, the Business Affairs Editor of The Economist, and you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. Coming up on today's show, China's economic woes mount up. It doesn't mean that China is at a crisis point, but it does mean that it faces a big headache. And a new museum opening in France that is dedicated to economics. I mean, ultimately, what the exhibit makes you realize is that there's just so much economics. There's so much to cover. You know, you have to give them credit. They really have tried to give it a complete overview of the whole field. First, Deutsche Bank plans to create a new division they are labeling a bad bank to hold tens of billions of euros of dodgy assets. It's part of a serious overhaul of its operations by its chief executive, Christian Saving, who is trying to move the bank's focus away from trading. This could mean Germany's biggest lender will significantly shrink some of its American operations too. Wendelin von Bredau is our European correspondent. Hi, Wendelin. Hi, Patrick. So what does Deutsche Bank hope to achieve by creating this bad bank? It's really an attempt to steer the bank away from investment banking and toward the less risky private wealth management and traditional banking. And this all comes after the collapse of merger talks with its German rival, with Commerzbank. So this is really plan B. And it consists of two bits. One is setting up a bad bank, as you mentioned, which will hold up to 50 billion euros of, they're not necessarily dodgy assets, but they are sort of no revenue or little revenue assets. So that's the first bit. And the second bit is to shrink or even close down big parts of its non-European equity and rates trading businesses. These are decisions that Deutsche Bank has been thinking about for years, and it's avoided making tough decisions over that period. So what's changed? Why are they finally biting the bullet? Absolutely. It's certainly um, a bit of, you know, shrinking its non-European equity and rates trading business. That was absolutely expected and something they should have probably done earlier. Um, So that didn't surprise anyone. The setting up of another bad bank, which they also did, like many other big banks during the financial crisis, that was a bit more of a surprise to more or less everyone. And I think that's something they probably decided after the merger talks with Commerzbank broke down, in part because they wanted to be seen to be doing something radical to finally improve their flagging fortunes. 
And if they execute on this plan, which is not a given at all, but if they were to, to succeed in doing this, would the firm that remains be viable and profitable enough to uh, satisfy investors and regulators? That's the big question. Well, first of all, as you said, it's not certain at all. So Deutsche Bank has not announced officially anything. And it's generally expected that Christian Seving, the chief executive of Deutsche Bank, will announce this plan on July 24th, along with second half results for the bank. But then the, the second thing is, of course, is it enough? And will it finally hold the decline of Germany's biggest lender? I think it's a step in the right direction. It's certainly something we would want Deutsche Bank to do. Is it enough to transform Deutsche Bank into a viable, competitive, basically European bank? So not anymore the, the Goldman Sachs of Europe, but the BNP Paribas of Germany. That remains to be seen. But if Deutsche Bank has a chance to recover, I think it's a step in the right direction. And how have investors reacted so far? What's happened to the share price? Well, it was recently at the lowest in Deutsche's 149-year history, but it has slightly recovered. So upon these news, I think it gained 2% on Monday. So it's, it's generally seen positively by investors. Tiny step in the right direction. Wendelin, Dankeschön, thank you. Auf Wiedersehen from Berlin. You can read more on this story in this week's Economist. And you can take out a subscription at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Next, concerns about local government balance sheets in China have been bubbling away for the last decade. Now developments in recent weeks have thrown the problem into sharp relief again as attempts by the central authorities to contain local government's balance sheets seem to have failed. As the trade war weighs on the economy and political problems with Hong Kong simmer, the country is once again looking to its provinces and cities to prop up growth by building more roads, railways and industrial parks. Simon Rabinovich is The Economist's Asia economics editor. Hello, Simon. Hi, Patrick. So what is the problem now? Weren't we told the local government debt bubble was under control in China? That's right. I mean, for the past decade, whenever people talk about the, the problem or the concern, the authorities here say that it's a problem that's actually under control. Uh, and it is true that they've taken a variety of measures to try to limit the leverage. The problem is twofold. One is that when you actually look at the numbers, in fact, the rate of debt issuance by local governments and especially by their off-balance sheet vehicles have been increasing. Debts have more than tripled over the past decade. The annual growth rate over the past five years has been about 20%. The second problem is that last year they actually got much more serious in trying to slow the increase in debts. The predictable outcome was that local governments found 
found themselves very cash-strapped. That led to a big slowdown in investment, which led to a big growth slowdown. And now with the trade war beginning to get a lot more serious, as you mentioned, they're having to row back from those efforts. And what did the latest data tell you, Simon, about the pickup in borrowing again? The pickup in borrowing is just beginnings. Infrastructure investment in May was up uh, just 1.6% year on year. Before last year, the normal run rate for infrastructure investment growth in China was more like the double digits, you know, 15 to 20%. So 1% is extremely slow, especially when overall growth is slowing. That has led to a reassessment of the crackdown on local government borrowing. Last week, the central government announced that local governments would be able to issue special bonds. Effectively, it's opening up the pathway for them to spend more on infrastructure. So that's what the government is trying to do. And the expectation is that we will see a lot more local government debt issuance and a lot more debt issuance by these off-balance sheet vehicles that they really use to fund a lot of their infrastructure spending. And because banks own some of the instruments they issue, all of this can easily infect the banking system. That's right. It can easily infect the banking system and the bonds themselves, the primary holder of the bonds are the banks themselves. So you might say the virtue of this is that all of the debts are contained within the system. You've got state-owned creditors lending to state-owned debtors, and this allows China to basically paper over the cracks you know, as and when they appear. And, and that's exactly what's, what's happened. I mean, last year, there was 15 separate instances of these local government financing vehicles running into repayment problems. But always, there's been a way for the local governments to come up with the money at the end of the day to make themselves whole. The flip side of that is that you have moral hazard that builds up and you don't have sufficient restraint on the local governments. And and this is the problem that the government has been trying to solve. This is why they cracked down quite hard on them last year. But as soon as you see the growth slowdown, as we are seeing now, you have the pullback. And that happens to be where China is right now at the moment. And while local governments' balance sheets may be in bad shape, What about the entire Chinese government? So if you take the central and local governments added up, I believe overall debt is still around 70% of GDP, which is not by international standards hugely concerning. So even if there might be pockets of problems in China, is the government's overall balance sheet okay, or are you worried about that too? If you look at it purely as a snapshot, you're absolutely right that, you know, compared to advanced economies, certainly, that's quite a low public debt level. The concern there is twofold. So one is the direction of travel. Overall, government debts have gone from you know closer to 30% of GDP a decade ago to 70% today. So that's a very fast increase. There's also a lot of additional hidden liabilities and that a lot of state-owned companies, ultimately their debts are going to end up on the, on the government's balance sheet as well. The second point is that compared to emerging markets, even as a static snapshot, that's a very high debt level. It doesn't mean that China is at a crisis point, but it does mean that it faces a big headache. And this is one that it's trying to resolve. It just so happens that the resolution to it involves probably quite a a sharp slowdown in growth, which is something which is not palatable for the government, which is why once again, having begun to make a little bit of progress in stabilizing its overall debt levels, it now seems to be losing its nerve. 
And China has been grappling with this problem for over a decade now. What's your prediction of what happens over the next decade? Is this something that's going to be resolved or is it a perennial and unpleasant feature of China's economy? I think it is looking very much like a perennial feature. I mean, looking out a decade is quite far to forecast, but I think, you know, just looking out over the coming year, you now have the central government beginning to ease its restraints. At the same time, local governments are well aware that, you know, especially in the past year, they've been facing a lot of pressure to deleverage. And so local governments aren't foolish. They know that even though the door is being opened for them, they know that when growth does stabilize, the door will shut again. So in fact, I think one thing that we're going to see in the next few months will be this tug of war between the central government telling the local level officials to go ahead and spend more money, but the local level officials themselves being a little bit more restrained because they know that eventually that door is going to shut on them. It's a perennial problem, but it is one that is morphing into a slightly different shape as time goes on. Shishi, Simon, thank you. <laughs> and finally, when you think of the great museums of the world, you think of the Louvre, the Prado, MoMA in New York, and even the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Now France has opened its first museum dedicated to economics. The Citico, or City of Economy and Currency, has been created by the Bank of France, and it is the first European museum focused purely on the economy. Our very own European business and finance editor, Stanley Pignal, visited the museum. Hi, Patrick. Tell us about this exhibition. So it's a grand thing. What the Bank of France did is they converted what was an absolutely gorgeous former branch office in a posh bit of Paris into a museum, as you said, entirely dedicated to economics and money. It's the first one in Europe. And what it aims to do is to provide a comprehensive overview of what the economy is about. So who are the different economic actors? How do markets work? How do they fail? How do currencies work? And you can spend a couple of enjoyable hours, if it's your kind of bag, figuring out how the economy works. Aujourd'hui, les piliers et les pièces ne forment qu'une petite partie de la monnaie en circulation, moins de 10%. Les 90% restants, ce sont les And most people, when they think of economics, it's, it's equations or it's hundreds of pages of dense text, like Thomas Piketty's famous book Capital. So, how on earth have they made this engaging for visitors? So they've tried very hard, I have to say. This would be a very easy thing to get wrong. I'm not saying that it's a screaming success. It can feel a little bit like walking into an economics textbook. But their aim is to make the field more accessible, more comprehensible to all, on the premise that we are all economic actors. That's a theme that comes up again and again. You know, How do you fit in to this economics thing, which can seem rather abstract? I have to say, it is enjoyable it offers a certain vision of the economy, if I can uh, gripe a little bit. You leave the museum without any sense that economics is in any way a political field. This is very much economics as a science. It's a discipline of technocrats, if you will. It's not hard to imagine that this was put together by central bankers. A little bit too often, they try to avoid any kind of controversy, anything to do with politics or political economy. It's not cleaned up as such a version of economics, but it's one that comes straight out of the textbooks. 
And of course, France is famous for a particular vision of economics rather than the free market Anglo-Saxon affair. It typically sees the government as having a bigger role directing economic actors. Does that come out at all? So this isn't a monument to dirigisme as such. There's quite a lot actually in it on the importance of global trade and how it's helped to raise global living standards. So there may be more, the curators are probably more enthusiastic about globalization than the French authorities. It is French in the sense that it's very heavy on Europe. So the creation of the euro, the single market, so on, features very heavily. A small city in the Netherlands where the treaty founding the European Union was signed. Il a été prévu des dispositions qui créent ce sentiment d'une appartenance à ce destin commun qu'est l'Europe. And then you do get a little bit of skepticism of capitalism as befits anything in France. So the stock market is, is seen very much as a sort of speculative casino where you randomly make or, or lose money and not as a sort of useful tool of, of capital markets. It dwells a lot on the 2008 crisis, which it sees as this purely U.S construct and doesn't dwell so much on any kind of European roots of financial crises. So the fact losses at a fund controlled by a French bank was the first sign of the financial crisis, I assume, is omitted. Yeah, or, or anything to do with the Eurozone crisis. I mean, it's comparatively glossed over compared to other things. I mean, ultimately, what the exhibit makes you realize is that there's just so much economics. There's so much to cover. You know, you have to give them credit. They, they really have tried to give a complete overview of the whole field. You're still going to gloss over most of it. But I think for people who don't know much about economics and who are, who are curious about the field, it's certainly a welcome addition. And Stan, you visited. What was your favorite part of it? It doesn't matter what my favorite part of it is. I went with two of my kids and certainly their favorite bit is you can get a banknote printed with your face on it. Are you ready? Two, one, zero. Perfect. Perfect. So it's a sort of a Photoshop job. Very popular with the kids. I have to say, I went at the weekend and there were queues for some of the more popular attractions at the museum. I know your children are aware that these notes may not be legal tender. Well, it may become legal tender within the confines of our household, along with the Monopoly money. Thanks, Stanley. Thanks, Patrick. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Patrick Fowles. In London, this is The Economist. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.